Well, good morning. Uh, I encourage you strongly to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I really urge you to follow along in case I wander off. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, greeting to all the visitors and all the regulars here, especially those from Canada. I, I saw a lot of you struggling with that last hymn. Of course, the tune is familiar. We're endeavoring to uh, sing a psalm uh, every Lord's Day if possible. Uh, the Bible exhorts us to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we tried to get one of each in today. And yes, it's going to be 70-some degrees, so we're not thinking about Christmas or snow or the like, but... It'll be here soon enough. First uh, Corinthians chapter one, and we're going to jump in at uh, verse 14. Verse 14, first Corinthians chapter one. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And I do not think this is the same Gaius we just read about in second or third John, uh, a different Gaius. Uh, common name uh, at, at that time. Except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Paul writing here. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's once again ask for God's help in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we would uh, hear your word, your voice speaking uh, mightily, Lord God, as we sang in that psalm. Speak to us mightily through your word, we pray this morning. Give us hearts to receive it and to hear it and to understand it. Give us the light uh, that comes from truth. Give us the aid of your Holy Spirit needed to open our eyes, needed to open our ears, needed to open our hearts to receive these things, needed to open my mouth to preach faithfully what is before us. Help us to love and understand these things. Oh, Father, may you do your good work. Walk in the midst of this candlestick. Leave us not to ourselves, and leave us not unchanged by your word, we pray. This hour, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. In the year of our Lord, 1768, a young 32-year-old lawyer mounted his horse and rode 50 miles to act pro bono, for good, free of charge, as a defense attorney, for three Baptist ministers who had been indicted at Fredericksburg, Virginia, for preaching the gospel contrary to statute. He entered the court, being unknown to those present except for those at the bench and the bar, while the indictment was being read by the clerk. He sat within the bar until the reading was finished, and the king's attorney had concluded some remarks in defense of the prosecution. When he arose, he reached out his hand for the paper 
and without more ceremony proceeded with the following speech. May it please your worships. I think I heard read by the prosecutor as I entered this house the paper I now hold in my hand. If I have rightly understood the king's attorney of the colony as framed an indictment for the purpose of arraigning and punishing by imprisonment three inoffensive persons before the bar of this court for a crime of great magnitude as disturbers of the public peace. May it please the court, what did I hear? Did I hear it distinctly or was a mistake of my own made? Did I hear an expression as if a crime that these men whom your worships are about to try for a misdemeanor are charged with what? And then he continued in a low, solemn voice, preaching the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, pausing in the midst of profound silence and breathless astonishment, he slowly waved the paper three times around his head, lifting up his eyes to heaven with peculiar expression and energy and exclaimed, Great God! The exclamation, the burst of feeling from the audience were all overpowering. Mr. Patrick Henry resumed, May it please your worships, in a day like this, when truth is about to burst her fetters, when mankind are about to be aroused to claim their natural and unalienable rights, when the yoke of oppression that has reached the wilderness of America and the unnatural alliance of ecclesiastical and civil powers are about to be dissevered, at such a period when liberty, liberty of conscience, is about to awake from her slumberings and to inquire into this reason of such charges as I find exhibited here today in this indictment. And then he continued for a while and concluded, but may it please your worships, continued the speaker, permit me to ask once more, for what are these men about to be tried? The paper says, for preaching the gospel of the Savior to Adam's fallen race. Then in tones of thunder he exclaimed, what law have they violated? While the third time in a low dignified manner he lifted up his eyes to heaven and waved the indictment around his head. The court and audience were now wrought up to an intense pitch of excitement. The face of the prosecuting attorney was pallid and ghastly, and he seemed unconscious that his whole frame was agitated with alarm, while the judge, in tremulous voice, put an end to the scene, now becoming expressive painfully by the authoritative declaration, Sheriff, discharge those men. Well, that story is an illustration for us. There was a time in a land not far away when plainness of speech, the force of moral argument and truth, and an unfettered peel to the truth would carry the day, would carry men's consciences to what is true. It would convince an audience, at the very least, a silent respect, if not a wholehearted embrace. Such should also be the response to the gospel. Such should also be the response to the preaching of the gospel, the message of the cross. But alas, as we shall see, it was a mixed response in Paul's day, and it will be so even in our day. Some will be stirred to embrace Jesus Christ. Others will put it out of their minds. Well, Paul uh, continues on this theme and the emphasis in this passage we'll look at today is the message of the cross, the message of the cross. And for our outline, uh, four points. One, the message of the cross, its potential hazard. The message of its cross, its plain force. The message of its, the cross, its confounding nature. And fourthly, the message of the cross, its display of God's wisdom. Turn back with me uh, in 1 Corinthians 1 and look at verse 17. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. 
What did Paul come to do? Remember a while back, we looked at Acts 18, Paul's coming from Athens to Corinth, and there he was very discouraged. But he went and he preached the gospel. And when his fellow laborers came alongside him, he was encouraged to carry on. But he still, it took Christ coming to him and saying to him, continue to preach, for I have much people in this city. Corinth wasn't exactly the most welcoming place. It was a heathen city. Even the Jews rejected the Messiah he came to preach to them. But he continued to preach, and by the blessing of God, a church was established. That church, as we've begun to see, had all kinds of problems, divisions, uh, troubles of understanding the gospel, perversions of what it meant, all these things Paul begins to address in this first epistle. But here at the beginning, he reminds them what he went to do. He reminds he wants to settle this divisiveness among them and settle their hearts on one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross. That alone should be where they put their faith. Now, as we look specifically at these verses, I want you to notice one thing. There's a lesson for us about hermeneutics, how we interpret and understand Scripture. When it comes to interpreting Scripture, hermeneutics, context is king. Context is king, and grammar is queen. Context is king, and grammar is is queen. Often, we can come to some grammatical understanding that may give us a misinterpretation of the passage if we don't recognize the full context of that passage. Here in verse 17, if we press those words, Christ did not send me to baptize, we would have to conclude that Paul disobeyed Christ, for he did baptize some, did he not? But if we bring into the room that supreme ruler, the king, the context, the point is clear. Christ did not send Paul primarily to baptize, to gather to himself disciples. That's not why Christ sent him. He sent him to preach the gospel. And in their proper place, baptism followed, and later the institution of the Lord's Supper, when we get all the way to chapter 11. So Paul was to preach all right, but not with wisdom of words. Notice what he goes on to say. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, the New King James has. Some of you will have the ESV has, not with words of eloquent wisdom. Other versions have with cleverness of speech. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Now, a good translation of this is wisdom of words. Wisdom of words. Remember when Paul came to Corinth, he had just come from Athens. And remember that after his departure, he had spent some two years in Ephesus disputing in the school of Tyrannus. He had heard the lofty speeches of the great Greek and Roman orators of his day. He had heard all these things. He had been exposed to their arguments and their disputings, their careful diction and elocution, their riveting descriptions, their mesmerizing sentences and perorations. He had heard all these things. But here he's reminded it is not by wisdom of words, it is not by eloquent speeches that the gospel is to be preached, but in plainness and force of truth. But at the end of the day, it was largely fluff and foment that these orators gave out. Clouds without water, nothing to nourish or sustain, nothing of lasting value. Some of you will remember your history lesson. There was a great battle in Gettysburg during the war between the states, the Civil War, and when they came to dedicate the cemetery, they asked Lincoln to say a few words, you remember. But preceding Lincoln was the greatest orator of the day in America, a man named Edward Everett. 
and he was a Unitarian minister. He wasn't an Orthodox a Christian believer, but he spoke for some two hours, 13,607 words, some of the greatest orator in America. And Lincoln rose up rather sheepishly to follow that with a mere 270 words that took him maybe seven minutes to, to say. But what is remembered today? The simplicity and plainness of those few words, Mr. President, that he spoke on that occasion. Sometimes plainness and simplicity uh, carry the day far greater uh, than wisdom of words and eloquence and great speeches. And so Paul uh, goes on to say, not with wisdom of words, now listen to this, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. That's a powerful statement. What do you mean, Paul? Lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. What is the concern? The concern is that the cross of Christ, the message of the cross of Christ, should somehow be nullified, emptied of its power, some translations have it, made void, made vain, neutralized. The force of the gospel, the message of the gospel, could be neutralized to be rendered ineffective as the means of grace to change the hearts and minds of men. But how, Paul? How could such a thing be, be caused or affected? The message of the gospel is powerful and transforming. How could it be made ineffective? How could the message of the cross be rendered null and void? Well, he answers, by fair speeches, by wisdom of words, by lofty language that dances around the heart of the issue, that misses the crux of the crucifixion in their preaching. How is it, think of it in our day, that millions of people in our country go to evangelical churches Sunday after Sunday, week after week, and remain unchanged, remain unchanged by what they hear preach from the pulpit. They don't embrace it. Their faith comes away as weak as a twig with a grasp and comprehension of the gospel as amorphous and soft as silly, silly putty. By Monday morning, the world presses them back into its mold and they forget what they've heard, back into its structure and thinking. Courage leaves them and departs from them whatever courage they might have gathered up on Sunday morning from hearing the gospel, it soon gives way to the pressures of the world. But as for Paul, as one writer says, he liked not to put the sword of the spirit into a velvet scabbard that it could not pierce to speak floridly more than solidly as those self-seekers at Corinth did that sought more to tickle the ear than to affect the heart. So it is in our day, and so it is has been in every age. One writer remarks this, the power of the preacher is not to be attained by rhetorical studies. These have their place, but it is an inferior and subsidiary one, and the result of undue attention to them is beautiful disability, and cold polish. It has been observed that the age of elegant criticism follows that of poetry and eloquence. You come in here with your flowery speeches, and what follows after that? It's poetical, it's beautiful. What follows is an age of criticism, undermining the force of truth of the scriptures and leading to an abandonment of the gospel. He goes on to say, it would seem that creative and critical spirit cannot coexist. The scruple and hesitation of rhetorical criticism are deadly foes to passion, the true source of effective discourse. To be powerful in pulpit address, the preacher must be full to overflowing of his theme, affected in due measure by every truth he handles, and in full view during all his preparations and in all his discourse, of the minds which he is seeking to reach. Well, look with me then. We have heard the king roar and give his context. 
<clears throat> now we need to bring in the queen of hermeneutics to help us understand as well this phrase, of none effect, of none effect. It is a striking phrase. It translates the Greek word kenoa, or kenoa, and I want to see a couple other uses to help illustrate its meaning. This might get a little boring, a little technical, but the word here is in the aorist tense. We don't have an aorist tense in English, properly speaking. Uh, the Brits do, uh, at least in antiquity. We translate into our English aorist tense most often as something a past, a past tense, something that already occurred in Greek. It is in some sense past, present, or future, depending on the, on the context. With this caveat, it re represents a certain point in time. It can be the starting point, what is called the inceptive aorist. For example, we have been at war or warring with Japan since December 7th, 1941. If I make that sentence, that statement, warring is in the aorist tense. Okay, it started at a certain definite point in time, but it hasn't concluded and it didn't have a, a beginning in the, in, the, in the sense of something in the past. Well, now, of course, we look at it in the past. Or it might uh, look forward to something else, an ending point, the cumulative aorist. It all drives forward and piles up to a certain ending point. We ended our warring with Japan on September 2nd, 1945. Okay, so there's the aorist tense uh, being put at a different point, kind of the ending point. Or it can be just a certain punctuated point in time, what is called the punctiliar aorist. A decisive blow was struck in our warring with Japan when we bombed Nagasaki. Okay, there was a definite, specific point in time, but the effects of that are ongoing. That's the idea of the aorist tense. All right, all right. So what does it mean for our understanding of this particular verse? Well, perhaps it means this. The preaching of the gospel has been ineffective since the florid, ostentatious preachers in Corinth of Paul's day made it so. Okay, we read later of the super apostles who came in and disrupted the church in Corinth. And they came with their flowery, ostentatious eloquence and fine speeches. So from that point on, are you saying the gospel is null and void and it has become ineffective? Well, we see from the king context that clearly wasn't so. That can't be right. The gospel has continued in its effectiveness even down to our present day, wherever it is preached in plainness and in power. Well, is there then some future cumulative pileup of Joel Osteen-type fluff and puff preaching that will utterly obscure and neutralize the future effectiveness of the gospel? Is there a time coming when the gospel will so be neutralized that sinners will no longer be saved under its power? And it's preaching. Well, our answer to this is the same. It could never be, given that the whole New Testament testimony says that this gospel be, will be preached and Christ will be with those who preach it unto the end of the age. Its effectiveness will continue. Well, part of our answer comes then also from Greek grammar. There is in Greek uh, three voices, four moods, and seven tenses. And the mood here the mood here he uses is what is called the subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood is a potential or possibility. This could be the effect of these things, to neutralize the gospel, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. That's the danger here. That's the hazard Paul is warning the Corinthians about. Look with me at a couple other examples. Uh, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, and verse 14. Paul is writing here, For if those 
who are of the law are heirs, heirs to eternal life, heirs to salvation. Faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Okay, there's our word again. Faith is made void, the promise is of no effect. Well, we know that that's not the answer, but it would be the answer if our reliance is being justified by the law. Turn with me also to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Here we're just seeing how the same word is used in the same manner elsewhere. Chapter 9, 2 Corinthians, verse 3. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that I said that you may be ready. Okay, we've boasted, brethren, of you that you're going to gather up and give to the collection of the saints, and we've sent someone along so that our boasting would not be rendered neutral, empty. Our boasting of you would not be in vain. Turn with me also to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And jumping in at verse 5, this is perhaps the most famous use of this phrase, of no effect. Here it is translated, um, uh, emptied himself in some translation. Jumping in at verse 5, Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, to be equal with God. It would be unjust on the part of Christ to say that he is not equal with God because he is very God of very God. But he made himself of no reputation. There's our word, no reputation. He emptied himself. Here's where we get the so-called kenosis theory. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Did Christ cease to be God? No, he didn't cease to be God, but he humbled himself in this way. He emptied himself in this way so that what? So that they could see the truth and the power of the gospel is of God and that he was very man, a very man that he bore in his body. Okay, so did he render himself ineffective as the son of God? No, he is still very God of very God, even when he emptied himself and came among us. Someone has used this illustration years ago. I read a little book called The Gospel According to Superman. And uh, it was an older book, and Superman wasn't cast in the dark frame that he has been in more recent times. He was still the man uh, defending truth, liberty, justice in the American way. And he describes uh, Clark Kent as being involved in this football game. He's in this football game, and they're losing, and he's, <laughs> he has all the strength and ability to, to run over all the field, to win the game, obviously. He has all that power, but he restrains every aspect of it so that he doesn't reveal his full identity. And there's a measure in which that's true of Christ. He emptied himself and came among us. He humbled himself to fulfill the vocation of being our substitute, our representative. Even though at times it must have been a sore temptation when the devil said, turn these stones into bread. I know you're hungry. You've been out here 40 days. All those temptations Christ endured for our sake. Well, let us go on back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Having seen something of the potential hazard to the message of the cross, we see, secondly, its plain force. Its plain force, the message of the cross in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Those of us who are being saved, notice he uses that uh, in a perpetual thing. We are saved and we're being saved by the power of God, the power of God, which comes to us through the gospel and the message of the gospel. Now, the New Testament uses this word power 
in two sentences. Ten, there's two words translated power in the New Testament. The first one is akousia, has the idea of authority, authority. The powers that be, Romans 13, are ordained of God. They have authority. But the word he uses here is dunamis, dunamis. And that has the idea of intrinsic power, a power dynamic and powerful that works and operates within the life and the soul of those believers. That is the power that he is speaking of here. It is, what is, the message of the cross is the power of God. As Paul also wrote to the Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It is the power of God. So this uh, power operates within us, but notice all, what it says also, is foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's incomprehensible. How would you go about to save a nation without displaying power? The power they're thinking of is the power that's going to trample down the Romans and save the Jewish people. The power they're thinking of is going to be extravagant and wealthy. And when they hear about this man who lived this quiet life as a carpenter, went about preaching, was harassed, un unbelieved, even those who followed him, when the crowd grew, they eventually turned away from him until he was utterly forsaken, turned over by those who had once, no doubt, embraced something of what he was teaching and cried out that he'd be crucified and that he was crucified, and it was from that crucifixion that their salvation would come? You can see how to the worldly mind this would seem utterly foolish, and they would reject it out of hand. And to the Greek mind it would seem utterly foolish. They sought after wisdom, and the Jews were seeking for a sign, but the sign they were looking for was the sign of their own notion. Jesus did plenty of signs which should have convinced them that he was the true Messiah come to redeem and rescue them. But such was not the case. They rejected him out of hand. They didn't see the sign they wanted to see. They didn't see his powerful hand defeating the Romans and reestablishing the Davidic kingdom and setting it up. And so they rejected him. But to us who believe, we know the power, a power that changes the heart, that changes the mind, that gives us grace to mortify sins that were pestering us and besetting us. There is the power of the gospel in our life, and it is an ongoing work. We are being saved by it. Now, in order to illustrate this, he goes on to say, verse 19, we see something of the confounding nature of the gospel, the confounding nature. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 29. This quotation Paul has here comes from Isaiah chapter 29. So God was pleased to confound the wisdom of the world, but how did he do so? Well, he did so through what the world regards as foolishness. But we happily embrace the foolishness of the gospel, for we know it is the power of God unto salvation. Isaiah chapter 29 We'll jump in at verse 9. And our quotation comes from verse 14. Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets. He has covered your heads, namely the seers. Okay? God in his judgment had blinded them to the truth. 
and he had done so even through the so-called prophets who had spoke to them. He had caused a deep sleep to fall on Israel so that they didn't recognize the truth. That's a fearful thing, but it's a just thing on the part of God. They refused his prophets. They refused his word. They violated his law and commandments, and the judgment that came upon them was this blindness. Verse 11, the whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. A book that is sealed, they can't open up. They can't get at the truth. They're blind to it. They're deaf to it. It's right there in front of them, but they can't even get the pages open. So hard has God's judgment fell upon them. It's like a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is illiterate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. Therefore, the Lord says, inasmuch as this people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Here's the work that he's going to do. It's a strange work. It's a work of God's judgment. He is going to make them wander about blind and deaf and stupid. Their wisdom is going to fail them. It's going to perish from them. And the people are going to listen to what? What they speak of after their own rendering, the commandments of men. They're going to make up their own religion and put it in the place of the revealed religion of the word of God. And the people are going to follow after that. Has that not happened time and again in the history of the world? And has that not happened even in the history of the church? God in his judgment removes the candlestick, gives them over to their own desire, and blindness come, deafness come. They still might be going through the motions, right? You draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And so they're blind to the truth of the gospel and the message of the gospel. And they're pleased to listen to eloquent speakers speak to them ever so eloquently. But the plain simplicity of the gospel, they put far out of their minds. He goes on to say here in Isaiah 29, verse 15. Woe to those who seek, who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord. And their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us? And who knows us? Surely you have turned things around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? See what they've done? We've so changed our view of the truth that we say God doesn't hear and God doesn't see. And God's the clay. And we can mold and shape God in our own image. We're the potters and God's the clay. What of a turning of its head have they done? Surely you have turned things around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me. Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Now, with all that judgment, there is also this promise. A day is coming when the deaf are going to hear, and the blind are going to see. Blessed be God. Remember when John the Baptist began to falter, Jesus sent to him and said, the blind see the deaf hear and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So it is, so blessed be God, it is for us. The gospel has been preached in plainness. The message of the cross has reached even unto us and it is the power to open our eyes and to open our ears to the truth of salvation. Then he goes on 
Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 20. So he uses that illustration to say, yes, God's judgment is upon those who trust in their wisdom, who trust in themselves, who endeavor to make God in their own image. He will destroy their wisdom. He will blind them to the truth. But there are some uh, we see that will be saved. But he goes on in verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Think how many have uh, risen to the point of being esteemed the wise of the world. And yet they have no message that goes beyond the grave. No message that gives an answer for the great questions of life. What about sin? What about redemption? What about life after death? What about a God who expects us to live in a certain way, a just and a holy God? What is this God like? They have no answers. They obscure the truth. Notice verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It was always God's design to let them go, as it were, in his judgment to seek after their own wisdom, and they're going to wander out about blindly. It pleased God, however, it goes on, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. How is God going to bring about salvation? Through his son, Jesus Christ. The cross being the center of the whole message that we proclaim and preach. The Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks, foolishness. To the God-inhabited soul who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, to whom that closed book has been opened, whose eyes have been opened, whose ears have been unstopped, all the prating, pomposity, and proud proclamations of this world are empty and hollow. But it's the simplicity of the force of truth, the gospel of our salvation, that rouses our hearts to believe and embrace. Uh, Paul, in another place over in Galatians, uh, speaks of, uh, oh, I lost my place now, I think. Uh, he speaks of the scandal or of the cross. If we trust in what? In law keeping, there he says, in circumcision, which represents the fact that we're trusting in our own good works. If we're circumcised, we're bound to keep the whole law. He says, to those who trust in that, the cross is what? A stumbling block. The cross is a fence. Paul says, then the offense of the cross has ceased. The cross is offensive? How is it offensive? Because the very Son of God has to suffer these things. How can this be, Paul? How can this be consistent? It is the very thing, however, that we read about in places like Isaiah 53. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. We despised him because he looked like such a weak failure, dying on the cross. And the Jews turned their hearts away. They turned their eyes away. And when someone even tried to give him a little relief, they said, oh, Wait, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. He trusted in God, let God save him. They abandoned utterly their very salvation in the Messiah who came among them because they trusted in their own wisdom and they trusted and expected signs that were never promised to them. Think with me if uh, we were to recount to somebody who was unfamiliar with the Bible, if we were to recount to them the story of Joseph, here is uh, the youngest at the time, son of Jacob, and he's, he goes into Egypt, he's sold by his brothers effectively into slavery, into servitude, and there he is, and then he is charged uh, with approaching Potiphar's wife and put into the prison. And there God, of course, uh, gave him the dreams, the visions, 
that he interprets for Pharaoh, and he's lifted out of that dungeon, and then he's exalted even to the right hand of Pharaoh in the kingdom. And this famine is coming to overcome the world for seven years. First, there'll be seven years of plenty, then seven years of drought and famine. And so Pharaoh puts him in charge of providing and preparing for that day. And he does so. And in the providence of God, his family come to seek for bread because there was none left back in Canaan. And then in the end, he is revealed to them, to his brethren. And he embraces them and he brings them down. They come to the land. They settle in the land. They prosper and they live. And so the promise given to Abraham originally that through his seed would be the blessing of all the nations and carried through to Isaac and Jacob would have been cut off forever had that family been cut off. But they're preserved in the providence of God. Now, if we told that story to someone who was utterly unfamiliar with the Bible, they would think it very strange and they would not see the power of it and the truth of it. And they would not see the illustration that God through weakness brings a glory to himself, that the Son of God had to come suffer these things and then be exalted to the right hand of the Father. They could not see salvation could be accomplished in such a way because they couldn't even understand and appreciate the other ways that God has worked in the past in history. Well, that brings us in the final place to some lessons and applications. Lessons and applications. Turn with me if you're still there in 1 Corinthians to the 15th chapter. Paul here seems to sense the need to give them a reminder, a reminder of what the gospel is in verse 15. And then he has to go on to correct their misunderstandings of the resurrection. But here he begins, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, unless you believe for naught, for nothing. For I delivered you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present, but some have fallen asleep. And he was seen by James, then by the, all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. So here's the nuts and bolts of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. It was necessary that he would have to suffer as the representative of his people for their sins, for their sins to be paid for. How could our sins ever be atoned for? How could they ever be provided for? Lambs and goats and all the flock could never take away sin, we're told time and again. They're a picture to us, yes. But behold the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. How does he do it? By his own sufferings, by his own death in our place, in our stead. This is the gospel. This is what Paul says. This needs to be front and center. The message of the cross needs to be front and center time and again. Let me ask you, has Christ died for your sins? Have you embraced him by faith? Do you know the blessedness, the sweetness of having your sins forgiven? The sweet comfort of his Holy Spirit assuring you that you're a one of his. Because the majority of the world are deaf and blind to the truth. The majority of the world are going to turn away. They're going to listen to the disputers and scribes of this age and are not going to embrace the simplicity of the gospel and are not going to be identified with the people of God who are just a weak, floundering bunch of folk who come in under the house of God Lord's Day after Lord's Day to worship this one who saved their souls 
And what does the world look at them with incredulity? What are they doing? Why do they do this week after week? They could be out boating, fishing, and a million other things. But for us who are saved, this is the power of God. And we're brought back to that time and again. Give all diligence to make sure of your election and calling. Taste afresh the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Embrace him and know that it is in your place that he was, it was needful for him to suffer. So great, so offensive to the justice of God was our sins. Ye who think, the hymn writer says, of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may judge it rightly when we think about the fact that the son of the living God had to die in our place to appease his wrath and pay for that. Second lesson or application is this. Remember, let us remember in our witness, witnessing and speaking to others. We might speak to people about a number of issues, their unhappiness, their wonder and uncertainty about the afterlife, their curiosity about the Bible, narratives and persons. Hey, I heard about, did Moses really do X, Y, and Z? Did he do this? There might be questions and curiosities about those things. Of some certain passages in the Bible, perhaps, people talk to you and ask you about. And while we should be ready with an answer for those things, we need to bring back the conversation to the centrality of the cross of Christ. Because it is by that alone that they're going to come to faith. It is by that alone they're going to be reconciled to God the Father. There alone is that good news. He was crucified, dead, and buried, and he arose again and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The crucifixion, the cross, is central to that, along with the resurrection. With all its necessity for a substitute for our transgressions to suffer in our place, let us remember that in all our testimony and witness with others. May God give us many such opportunities to his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you again and again for your son, Jesus Christ, this unspeakable gift. Oh, Father, forgive us for our unbelief, for our losing sight of what is central. Oh, help us, Lord God, to embrace him by faith today, those who know him not, especially that you would do a work of grace in their hearts, that you would confirm that grace, that you would sow the seed of the word of God in the hearts of the young ones, that it might take root downward and bear fruit in their lives in days to come. Oh, may it be soon to your glory. Father, we do pray that you would feed us and fill us and arm us, Lord God, to be ready to give an answer for those who ask a reason for the hope that is in us. To your glory and praise and honor. Complete your good work, Lord Jesus. All praise and glory and honor unto you. In Jesus' name, amen.